one. Welcome to episode 94 of the Hoop Threats podcast here uh, with with a good friend, Marshall Chill, uh, former coach at uh, Lake Oswego, as well as DeMatha, some other stops internationally. Coach Chill, how are you feeling? Good. Thanks for having me. Yes. Episode 94? Yes, sir. So that was a good year for me. That was my junior year, 94, 95, actually going into my senior year. Um, I listened to your episode 22 with Coach Jones and he was giving you a hard time about being number 22. So uh, I don't know where 94 fits in, but thanks for having me. <laughs> My fault. All right. So um, kind of take me I'm coming back out to... swinging. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Uh, let's let's take it back to the beginning. You know, talk about your early start um, in the game as a player and kind of what made you fall in love with the game. And then kind of we'll, we'll get through your journey after that. Yeah, and um, thanks for having me. You know, I was telling you before getting on that, you know, I've done a handful of podcasts and sometimes I get tired of my own voice and even recalling these journeys, you know, but um, hopefully there's some new listeners that that will, you know, pull something out of it. But, you know, uh, I oftentimes I tell people that, you know, one of my main, you know, points of identity is being an immigrant. I, I was born and raised in South Korea, came to the States when I was 10. Um you know, South Korea being predominantly a soccer and baseball country um, and immigrating to Springfield, Oregon, of all places, um, not speaking the language, but we happen to live across the street from a park. And so this is to date myself, but it's 1986, you know, kids still played on the blacktop. So um, just not having a lot of resources, you know, being one of those situations where we grew up on free and reduced lunch. Um, Basketball was a sport that I had access to because our family could afford it because all, you know, that my mom and dad had to do was buy me a ball. And now I'm on, I'm out in the playground and making friends and, you know, learning the game on my own without trainers, without AAU teams and all of that as well. So um, that's where I started. I fell in love with the game, um, got to play my first organized game as a seventh grader. So that's a lot of time. That's if you really think about it, that's four years on your own you know, practicing, self-learning, self, you know, push motivating and all that. And then really got to have my first coaching experience, uh, receiving coaching as a seventh grader in middle school. Mm -hmm. Got you. Uh, you know, kind of after that, I uh, went to the University of Oregon uh, and then did graduate school at, at Columbia University. And then after that, I believe you started working with uh, Teach for America um, in some some underprivileged neighborhoods in, in, in Harlem and, and South Bronx. Um, talk about how, you know, that experience as a teacher um, and also, you know, I believe it was a middle school basketball coach kind of, you know, gave you some building blocks to, to kind of work off of and, you know, what you kind of learned through that process. Yeah. You know, it's, it's ironic that as I'm telling this story that I, you know, I'm sharing about my very first experience as an organ, you know, in an organized team structure was as a seventh grader at our middle school, you know, public school, middle school team, you know, where we had like, I think it was like eight game season, you know, but it was significant enough that it's it still to, to this day, I remember those coaches from my seventh and eighth graders, eighth grade years as being very formative. So, you know, fast forward, I graduated from the University of Oregon in 2000 and I joined the Teach for America program. And next thing I know, I'm in the South Bronx, you know, on my first teaching assignment, teaching seventh grade math. And, you know, um, I end up just kind of as a new teacher, you know, just checking out the scene and the recess, you know, during lunchtime and, and, and find, you know, kids out there, you know, on the blacktops of the South Bronx, on 138th and Morris Avenue, you know, in the heart of the, you know, the South, you know, South Bronx neighborhood. And I ended up just playing pickup basketball with the kids, you know, during breaks. And so that's, that, that was a reminder that all those, that the big chunk of time in between that, um, what the game had given me, um, I was able to use it back to connect with the kids in a completely different neighborhood in a completely different, you know, ethnic, you know, setting, socioeconomic setting. Um, yet, you know, it was a chance to connect, uh, on a level that, um, that took me back to my own childhood. And it also, you know, I think in many ways it gave me some street cred with my players or with my, you know, students first. Um, and it gave me a chance to, you know, um, survive those first two, three years when oftentimes as a, as a first year, second year teacher, it can be very, very challenging in, in schools such as the one I was placed in. Mm -hmm. You know, your next experience was kind of, you know, working with, with, 
running some different basketball camps in Mozambique. Talk about, you know, what led to that opportunity and then kind of the, the opportunity, you know, to, to work in the States um, that, that you bumped into uh, coach Jones out there. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I, I appreciate how this is kind of rolling fast, you know, there's a lot of, you know, years in between, but really, you know, fast forwarding is um, I taught in the South Bronx for three years. And then after that, I taught at a, a public charter school in heart of Harlem for three years, future mm -hmm. leaders Institute. So in there, you know, that's when I really got my middle school coaching experience, coaching a middle school team of, you know, sixth or eighth graders, um, very talented players. We ended up winning the charter city, you know, charter school, New York city charter school, you know, championship. So that was one of those, you know, Disney after school movie moments that, you know, kind of burns in my memory and, and, and to this day, you know, I'm chasing that next championship, uh, whatever that may look like as a head coach. Um, but yeah, I met, I met my wife, um, during my last year, prior to my last year teaching, uh, in, in Harlem in the 2005-06 uh, academic year. We got married in 06 and I moved out to Mozambique. Um, and really that first year was a chance to, you know, learn language, learn the people and, you know, adapt, you know. Um, so it was a period of adjustment. Um, I, I, over that, the next three years that I lived in Mozambique, I had a chance to do just a wide ranging, you know, area of basketball, whether it was just working with kids who had never played basketball before in a rural area of Mozambique to working with the junior national team players, working with some, you know, professional players who were playing in the professional league there. So really those three years was formative in the sense that, and I think it's a theme that continues to this day, that it was, it was showing me that I needed to work on having a wide range if I'm going to have a, like a national level impact, small country. Um, and so I did that for three years. And at the end of my third year, as I was about to, my wife and I were about to transition back to the States. Um, I had hosted Coach Jones of Dematha Catholic and Tony Dorado of Nike Elite High School Basketball um, on a clinic. So essentially, they, you know, we were, I think we were flying back home like mid June, like first week of June. And I had set up a bunch of clinics. Um, and then you know, work with some junior national team players and had Coach Jones come out and really share the game and teach the game. And um, at the end of the full week, he and I, um, I took Tony and Mike and myself to a safari in South Africa and, you know, showed him parts of, you know, that part of the world that, you know, only a very, you know, very few people get to experience. So, you know, it's a trip that we still talk about to this day. You know, we, we talk about, you know, going on a safari trip in South Africa and, you know, seeing a lion just out the window and, you know, hearing the roar and like, you know, I, I can't remember which is which, but either, you know, Tony jumping out of his seat <laughs> onto my side or me, you know, other way around. But um, just getting to see that part, we had a, we had an immediate bond and, you know, to this day, I'll never forget it. You know, the second night coach was there, um, he, he, you know, it was one of those quiet moments in the evening after we had, you know, a full day of clinics working with kids and, and coach Jones said, if I ever, you know, ended up back on the state side and was close enough to DC that he would love to have me on his coaching staff. So kind of went from there we ended up relocating to Baltimore of all places. And, you know, the next three years was commuting, you know, from DeMatha to, to, uh, to Baltimore and back and forth. Mm, mm, okay. So you know, starting with the math of there, um, what did you learn about delegating and empowering your assistant coaches from Coach Jones that you took with you and in, into your head coach and, and further coaching opportunities down the road? Yeah, for for people who may not be familiar, I mean, as as you've experienced yourself having been on that staff, you know, national nationally recognized program, historic program. Um, a program where, you know, very, I mean, Coach Jones was carrying on Coach Wooden's legacy and, you know, very few people get to join that staff, right? And, and for the most part, like, you know, the time that I was there for myself, um, there was this conditioning coach who's well-known, Alan Stein, had joined my second year. He and I overlapped. And for the stretch that we were there, we were the only non-Dematha graduates to be on that staff, right? So, um you know, you come in, I, I was, I was starting late in the coaching career in my early thirties. And, 
you know, I think I've done some things in Mozambique, but now I have to come in and humble myself. And my first year, I'm an assistant freshman coach. My second year, I get promoted to being the head freshman coach. And then by my third year, I was the head JV coach. Um, but really what, what you learned, what I learned during that time was just being a part of a team. You know, the, the, the education piece was we all had a role, just like Coach Jones was demanding and, and, and expecting out of all the players, right? Um, my first year on, on staff, you know, uh, Victor Oladipo was a senior. Jaron Grant was a senior. Quinn Cook was a junior, winning the WCAC Player of the Year. And you think about a team like that where Justin Black goes to, you know, goes on to be a Division One player um, locally, and he's somebody who's coming off the bench, right? There's Jeremy Grant as a sophomore who's not getting that much playing time, but we all know he, out, out of all the guys, may have the, you know, the longest career in the NBA. So, it, just watching the level of talent and, and watching those players embrace their role, it was the same thing. You know, I was one of 11 assistant coaches. So it's really, it was all about just coming in and asking Coach Jones what he needed the most and being being willing to do the dirty work. You know, he, I ended up being filming all the, you know, varsity games as if I was a student manager, you know. So now I'm 33 years old, you know, sitting next to an 18-year-old from Gonzaga or St. John's. And, and doing that work but coach jones trusts me with it you know for that year he needed somebody to do it he didn't have a student manager to do it so i did that work you know i i took photos i took stats i took you know anything that that would require you know um you know for me to play my role in having you know success for the team you know i was embracing it um at the same time i was one of two assistant coaches on the freshman team right so i, I learned how to be an assistant coach for a for a head coach on a direct you know, manner on the freshman team. And then, you know, my second and third year, like it's rare for a JV coach or a freshman coach to also have two assistant coaches. So, but you know, it's, it was on one hand being a part of an assistant coaching staff, but also like being a head coach and treating it like I, I wanted to be that head coach one day. Right. So um, it was a great opportunity to just immediately put into practice and implement what I was, you know, witnessing coach Jones do with his own varsity staff. Um, so by the time I got, you know, fast forward and, you know, three years later, I'm the head coach of Lake Oswego High School. I, I kind of had a idea of what I wanted, you know, out of um, my assistant coaches. You know, I think it's loyalty, number one. It's willingness to do the dirty work. And then it's, you know, con constantly like committing to working on your craft so that you're improving just as much as, you know, you're expecting your players to do the same. Mm -hmm. Got you. What have you learned too about kind of picking and choosing your spots as an assistant and kind of how that transferred to, you know, taking their advice and stuff during games and filtering out, you know, what suggestions of theirs you kind of want to move forward with as a head coach versus, you know, sometimes no, like let's, let's save that for down the line. Uh, you know, talk about what insights you kind of gain there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think all of it, just comes the amount of voice that you're you're able to contribute comes with the, the amount of trust that you earn from from the coaches. Um, for me, you know, I would I would say, you know, there's a the caddies creed I think in golf, right? Like show up, keep up, like shut up, show up, show up, shut up, keep up, right? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Like shut up seems like such a you know strong statement to say, but it's it's really you want to show up first, right? And you want to keep up. I think if you can you can prove those two things, then at some point you can go ahead to move forward from shutting up to sharing your voice, right? Um, I think from the varsity level team, I mean, we're talking about Coach Jones' staff with Reggie Vini, Tommy Pellucci, and you know all these guys who have been with them from the beginning. So I think it's uh, in in an instance like that, you you wait, you know, and really pick that quiet moment when you know, Coach Jones may be more receptive to thinking about something that, you know, may, you may offer um, an observation, if you will, right? Um, but at the same time, like, when I when I saw how open he was to receiving feedback or, or you know, challenging of ideas um, from his veteran staff, the ones who've been with him for that, for that, you know, long period of time, you know, I really got to see that, okay, like, it, the role of that head coach is to get a wide ranging um, viewpoints and then, you know, being able to delegate, you know, decipher like what path makes the most sense for the team. So again, having seen that firsthand, you know, I think the eight years that I had, I, I you know, I think there were my first few years, I think just because we're getting started, you know, I, I did tend to just kind of lean more on myself, but 
you know, moving forward to like years three, four, five, where we had won three straight league titles. I think that's when really, even as a coaching staff, we were hitting our peak that I was able to, I had improved as a coach and accepting, right. And, you know, ideas that may even challenge something that I may have, you know, held on to for a long time, or, you know, may have been a blind spot for me as a head coach. Um, I was really able to lean on assistant coaches who had for two, three years, you know, they've, they've shown that they were going to com be committed to what we we're trying to build together. Um, I think that's something that's, that can be frustrating for a lot of young assistant coaches. You know, they feel like their voice isn't being heard, but I think it's something that's overlooked often these days, you know, like coaches want to come and have their, you know, say right away uh, without having shown up or kept up or, you know, shown that, you know, they, they're going to work on, on, preparing just as much as a head coach has done mm -hmm. right um so so yeah i think that one of the things that i know it was challenging for me um i've never seen a head coach watch as much film as coach jones so like how would you you know what i'm saying like how how are you going to bring something up like if you haven't watched this as much right and so that's the other piece is like what are what are you willing to do in the off hours that that shows the head coach that you kept up in, in terms of that level of preparation. So that if you do say something, you're on similar planes of preparation mm -hmm. that the head coach would actually respect what you have to offer up. Yeah. I think that's, that's something big that I took away from working with, with coach Jones too, because he would watch every game film two or three times, even before he watched film with the players, right. you know, the next day. And I think, you know, he kind of pointed out, some of the subtleties and the intricacies of the game that he may have missed because, you know, he was so zoomed in on a particular part of a play. Um, he may have missed, you know, a good help side rotation or something from, you know, Marshall Cho on one possession, then the next possession he messed it up and, you know, he really got on Marshall, but he hadn't seen the, the positive stuff he had done down the line because he was so zoomed right. in on one aspect of it or, you know, talking to an assistant coach about strategy or timeouts. So definitely something that yeah. I value um, as well. So um, you worked with, uh, you know, Coach Jones with uh, the Hoop Summit with, you know, we were talking earlier about James Robinson got the invite um, his senior year mm -hmm. and you got to, you know, that was kind of your beginnings kind of, working with team USA in different capacities. Um, give me a good story or, you know, talk about, you know, what you learned, you know, being around coach Jones and coach Showalter and, you know, some of the other, you know, coaches that they have on staff working with, you know, the best of the best that, that America has to offer. Yeah. I mean, I get that question a lot, you know, how'd you get involved with USA basketball? And I think it's, you know, what <laughs> it's a tough one just because, everyone's journey into an organization is unique. And I happen to have been involved with them early on when people could volunteer, but it's, you know, a couple, I, I wouldn't say it's a funny story of any type, but, you know, I did get a chance to you know, have my first foot in the door in the 2012 Poop Summit game. And this is when Kevin Boyle was a head coach, coach Jones was the assistant, you know, James Robinson, who was a four year starter at Pitt, um, now currently an assistant coach and making his way at Delaware um, was one of the last minute, you know, uh, players to be invited. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I was looking back at that roster the other day. You're talking about, you know, guys like uh, Gary Harris, you know, Archie Goodwin, right. Um, Shabazz Muhammad, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was interesting just, I, you know, it's one thing to be at the Mapa and see the loaded roster, but then you take it another step where everybody's an All-American. And, you know, it was it was an eye-opening experience for sure. But um, I think the biggest thing I, I take away from all my years of USA basketball is um, how, you know, those doors open up when somebody's speaking good about you behind your back. It, it, I'm sure you've heard of that quote before, you know, be mindful of who's rooting for you behind closed doors right so mm. so i remember i had a chance to meet bj johnson who was the first ever junior national team director as long as along with coach showalter who was the first you know junior national team head coach and we had a chance to meet at snow valley iowa a camp that coach showalter runs um, annually with 400 plus kids from the midwest you know coming in onto um, workburg a d3 campus and, and getting their basketball jones on and the first time I met BJ, um, he had 
said I, he had heard a lot about me. And that was a shock because I had only been on Coach Jones staff for a year at that point. And that was one of those moments like, uh, like I have a, I have a boss who's, you know, I had done my job keeping up. I think that's the theme of the day, but you know, that he was speaking highly on my behalf so that my first impression that I get to leave with this, you know, junior national team director is something positive. And he offered up, Hey, anytime you want to come observe, um, you know, volunteer, you're welcome to. Right. So that's that first invitation. And I think for young, young people, maybe young players listening to this or young coaches, oftentimes, like you just kind of take that and you don't take the next step. But I think what I've done throughout the course of my career is if I see that kind of an opening, then I'm going to, you know, be decisive and, and follow up. So um, that's exactly what I ended up doing. You know, I had just finished up my third year at the map. Uh, I was kind of at a crossroads because as you know, the assistant coaches on coach Jones staff, they, they're lifers, right? So there's, there's, I kind of hit a cap in terms of my growth potential. I could, and I would have been happy to come back maybe as a JV coach another year or whatnot, but it was really, okay, do I, if I'm looking for a collegiate experience at, you know, at that point, you know, do I go to the final four and be one of a million faces passing out resumes and, you know, cover letters and shaking hands versus being that one person in an exclusive, exclusive setting like the Hoop Summit and being one of the only volunteer at that time as a support staff member so that I, I go out there and next thing you know, Co Coach Boyle, like, you know, the first night of practice, they had, you know, one of the players hadn't flown in yet. So there's nine guys. And so Coach Boyle is throwing me out there as a 10th guy on the scrimmage floor, five on five with these All-Americans, right? <laughs> um, and Mitch McGarry's like, I don't know if you guys remember Mitch McGarry, but he, yeah. you know, he's a character, but like in the middle of like the five up and down, he's like, hey, how are you? How was your day? <laughs> and I'm just trying to keep up, you know, and not hurt myself or not embarrass myself. So, um, but I think all of it just, I think it comes back down to the theme of show up and keep up. Okay. And so the and then it led to this ten year run of volunteering with USA basketball that culminated in, you know, for me having an opportunity to be a court coach and and you know, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Okay. You've been around, you know, I think it was four different NBA players, you know, at DeMatha, in addition to multiple NBA guys with your team USA, you know, kind of experience. Um, what habits or or mindset mindsets kind of set them apart? from the average basketball player and then kind of a two part question. The second part of that is um, what kind of is the, I guess the one degree of separation that leads to success from that elite class of, you know, hoop summit or all American that leads to the successful NBA career down the road, you know, kind of what are, what's that 1% difference that you've noticed in your experience? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I'm smart enough to give you a percentage breakdown, whether it's 1% or 5% or, or, or whatnot. You know, I, the, the four players you're mentioning, you know, are Victor Oladipo, Jerry Grant, Quinn Cook, and Jeremy Grant, correct? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think about, you know, really think about guys like Victor and Jerry, who only I only got to see for a year, but th those are guys who would show up to breakfast club like every morning. I think for those two guys, I think it's really that chip of being underrated, overlooked. And I mean, you think you talk about both those guys, they were maybe on the fringe of the top 100 ranking. You know, Victor wasn't on it, maybe Train was in the 90s or, or whatnot. But for both of them, they, what I got to see just for that one year that I overlapped was their incredible work ethic. But then you also see that for both of them, they kind of ran their own race, right? They went to a program that valued them and they weren't one and done's. You know, it's the same thing. They, I think, I believe they started as, you know, and on the Dematha program as a freshman player, freshman players, right? As freshman year, they didn't go JV and varsity right away. So I think for those guys, it's clearly an example of delayed gratification. Mm. Um, I look at somebody like Quinn Cook, and I think just somebody who just ultimately just so confident in his belief in himself that he was going to make it. Um, it was just really something to watch how he, became one, one like what the first in like 20 years or something crazy like that to be the WCAC player as a junior as an underclassman which just never happens but you know on a team that was that loaded like when when the game was on the line he was looking for you know to make an impact with the shot making mm -hmm. and so that I think that confidence and belief in yourself 
is something that you know always kind of is a longevity thing that always holds. And then, you know, I think about somebody like Jeremy Grant, you know, it's the same thing. I mean, you talk about somebody who was, you know, back then, like all the NBA scouts were on a team like that. They were drooling over Jeremy, right? Just because you can't teach 6'9 and mobility and, you know, 7 plus wingspan. Um, but I think it's the same thing for somebody like Jeremy who ends up being the 39 draft pick, you know, so he wears number 39, you know, his rookie year and on. And, you know, somebody who's steadily like added to his game. Right. Um, so I think that piece is, you know, somebody who you learn to embrace a role and then you let that, you know, you you knock out that role and then your role expands. Right. So by the time when I left and James Robinson and Jeremy Grant are seniors, like he's having to be a leading scorer. He's having to be a guy who takes big shots. And so just to see that evolution, um, you know, I think it's the chip on your shoulder. It's delayed gratification and it's some some, some combination of confidence. Um, and and I'd look at somebody like locally, you know, I had a ch chance to coach Peyton Pritchard. I think he's somebody who, in, you know, uh, embodies like all those qualities because I got to see him get cut, you know, his junior year at USA Basketball. You know, he got cut because, you know, for the junior national team, we, you know, we would push and emphasize, you know, the ability to guard full court. Right. And at that time, he, you know, we had guys like Malik Newman and Deborah Ramsey, who, you know, both both of those guys had great careers. But, you know, Peyton was the one who got cut and he's still he's 10 years later. He's the only one still playing in the NBA. Right. So um, I think I think that the combination of those three things, they don't reveal themselves right away. I think that's a challenge of a scout like for yourself for coaches you know, who are looking for a player to be a part of their organization. Um, you know, I, I look at somebody like Peyton or I look at even, you know, if you, if you really say the fifth NBA player that I got to work with is Markel Fultz. Mm -hmm. Right. But I had left by the time he was, he was in sixth, seventh and eighth grade when I was, you know, coaching at the Mathis. So that meant that the only interaction I ever had with them was at our summer camps. And, you know, even the funny story about that, like I had a chance to see him when I coached against him at the Les Schwab Invitational and he recognized me right away. But, you know, for this is the part of, you know, Markel's amazing journey is that I didn't I don't remember. He was a face in the crowd, you know, so <laughs> um, that just goes to show you somebody like him as well, like who's gone through this, you know, the highest of the highest of being the number one draft pick and then, you know, everything that he's gone through. But here he is you know, still, you know, persevering and pushing and, and, and making a career of it. So um, I think those combinations, you, you just never know, but the character and to stick with it, you know, for guys like Markel and Peyton, you know, it's, it's the same kind of DNA that I got to see with Victor and Jerry and Quinn and Jeremy. Yeah, I, I talk to parents all the time about just patience and, you know, even if they go to a big school or the right school, you know, that might involve them sitting for a year or so. And I just explain, look, like Jared, Jared, um, Victor Oladipo and Markel Fultz, you know, Victor, I believe, was on JV his first year. I think he was on. No, so he, Vic, no, Victor was on. That's what I was saying. Too. You know, he played, he, I believe he played on the freshman team for Tilden Brill. It was, you know, former former Demathe grad and assistant coach. So both those guys played on the freshman team and then made the made the leap to varsity their sophomore year. <laughs> then we're so, drafted the top three, you know, three years later. Yeah. So, you know, four years later. Yeah. So it just goes to show that if you keep putting in the work in, it's eventually going to work out. So um yeah. we we kind of touched on the Portland experience a little bit. Um talk about, you know, taking the Lake Oswego job. What were some of the staples going in? that you wanted your program to have, you know, after all of that experience learning under some great coaches for all those years. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's for, for those who may not know, you know, on the West coast, this is a storied program in its own. Um, you know, it's a, it's a program that won a state championship with Kevin Love, who, you know, his senior year was the national, you know, Naismith National Player of the Year. Uh, we've had some really good players come before and after as well. Salim Stoudemire is another one that, you know, many may not know is a Lake Oswego alum. So um, similar to DeMatha, you know, the, the not not many high head coaches had held the position. You know, prior to me, there was a coach who had held it for 20 years. And prior to that coach, there was a coach who had it for 30 years. So in that sense, I, you know, I had a chance to shepherd that program for eight years. 
So that's three, you know, you can round up and say that's three coaches in 60 years, you know. Maybe it's one of those stats, you know, when you play on the floor with, you know, Michael Jordan, you say, hey, Mike, MJ and I, you know, combined for 50 points tonight when, you know, you had two, uh, something of that nature. But, you know, I did get to helm that program for eight years. Um, and really, you know, I think the biggest thing taking over the program in 2015 is, you know, setting a culture, um, knowing that there's history already there, but bringing your own, you know, values to it. So, for, for me personally, it was, you know, picking the three words of courage, presence, and trust. Uh, I've said this in other podcast interviews as well. You know, I've had one word, you know, exercise where um, courage was a word that I picked my first year at University of Portland. Um, really, you know, making that jump to Division One world. And I, that first year, whether you label it as imposter syndrome or just being overwhelmed by the competitiveness or, or the demands of that job, um, I found myself just being timid, you know, maybe a little scared, even walking into the office, you know, <laughs> wondering what ball was going to drop that I would have to pick up and, you know, run with. And I attended a final four my first year. And that was the first final four I ever got to attend um, at age 36. And, you know, there was a, a presentation being given by John Gordon, who's a motivational speaker. Um, and he was speaking to all these coaches who were in the seminar probably a room full of like maybe a hundred, you know, coaches um, among them in the audience was uh, Ed Cooley, Jay Wright. And both those guys are testifying to the fact that they had gone through the exercise of the word, uh, the having read the book by John and a co-author called one word. And so they um, ended up uh, sharing this exercise and I ended up picking the word courage as my first year. So having let lived through, you know, those words, I knew that at least when I brought it to my own high school program, I could live it out and be authentic to it and be consistent to it. Mm. You know, I didn't have to fake it. I just, it's something that I had worked through in my life, you know, the previous years. So I found myself just kind of leading with that first. Um, and it just, again, you build, a, you prioritize whatever you're going to build in your culture, right? But having that kind of pillar or anchor always directed us when we're having a conversation about player development or commitment or off-season training that, hey, are you going to be present in the off-season, right? Are you going to show up to our summer camps and volunteer? Are you going to have a presence in the lives of the players that you're trying to be a role model for in the community? You know, um, like we come down to the last second shot, like are we going to be that team that, you know, out of uh, five guys on the floor, like three of them, any one of the three could take a shot on a given day. And do you have the courage to live with the miss? You know, if it doesn't go your way. So I think just having those three pillars really allowed us to have direction, have focus, and some sort, some sense of purpose. Okay. Um, I listened to, I believe it was the Slapping Glass Club podcast, and you were talking about the the importance of kind of building those relationships, the kind of daily check ins. Um, with your players, you know, with, with some chocolate milk or with, with some Gatorade, you know, down the line, um, you know, talk about that and kind of some other things that you did to kind of build that rapport um, because, you know, they, they can't forget what the phrase is basically like they, they can't perform at the highest level if they don't know that you care about them. And, you know, that, that definitely comes yep. with, you know, learning about them and what drives them and, and kind of being, um, you know, telling them about yourself as well. So kind of talk about what you learned over the years about building, you know, rapport and trust with, with the players that you're entrusted with. Yeah, that I think today that's probably the toughest thing. You know, I think even in the course of the eight years that I, I was at LO, I, I've seen, how do I, how would I put it? Like I've seen uh, evolution of the kids in terms of how much they need that. I think there's there's been more conversation centered around mental health and 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 the amount of the stress that our kids are under. And then we're coming out of COVID, where you know their worlds are really turned upside down. And so, um, I think more than anything, I I think I'm in this time off that I had this year. Like I'm going to try to do a better job of is really just listening more and giving giving space for that awkward silence. You know. Um, so even right now, like if I were to just pause for a minute, like what's what's Aaron thinking about? 
you know, like, or, you know, you're asking a question like that. And I just, I could just, again, in the setting of a podcast, I can ramble on for hours, but, you know, um, if I could, if I can just turn it around and just ask you a probing question, right. Um, I think, I think that's the biggest thing, right. Like moving forward for me is like, how do you as a leader do a better job of meeting the players where they're at? Yeah, that's that's it's it's increasing the importance every year. Um, talk about you know what you learned as a head coach, just prioritizing your own mental health and kind of getting. I think you were involved in some speaking engagements and stuff like that um, with different organizations and high school basketball, providing that type of support to you know coaches across the country. Um, you know, talk about prioritizing that and and you know how you've implemented some of that stuff in, into your coaching repertoire, I guess. Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is just the high school coaching. I think high school basketball in general in 2023 is in an interesting place, right? Um, you know, I think we even talked about this prior to getting on the camera. Like even for, for those of us who are at, um, at a competitive school with, you know, student athletes who have aspirations of playing at the next level, college coaches aren't looking at high school players right now. Right. It, it comes from the transfer portal on down. Um, and so on one hand, I think that's a real opportunity for coaches to recognize that we're in the foundation setting stage of these players, that perhaps they they don't need to peak as players until they're juniors and seniors, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. They're not a lot of them. If they are good players, they're not going to unless they're, you know, superstar level, next level players, USA basketball level players, they're not going to contribute right away as freshmen. So, you know, how do you give them that foundation? I mean, it's, it's pouring into the players and, um, and having the, the know-how, the knowledge, I think, I think it's like you said, the mental health piece, like are, is your cup full so that you can give, whether that's joy or whether that's focus, you know, to onto your players, model it for them and then give more to them. Um, but, you know, really what helped me over the eight years was recognizing that I was part of something bigger than myself. So it's the same thing I was trying to, you know, push with my players. Was I doing that for the, our state association in general, for example, that am I, you know, am I going to run a program that's taking shortcuts with transfers right away? You know, and I think in, you know, in the DMB, like where you and I coach for years, like, there's so many private schools that are recruiting. There's so many options that the elite players have that it was really a it can it can be a doggy dog world kind of sense, right? In a sense. And then fast forward like 10 years later from my time there, now like some of the best players are being pulled to these prep schools, mm-hmm. you know, down in Florida or you know, the Midwest, the East Coast, you know, in New England and 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 et cetera. Um, so I think. You know, as the as the environment's changing, what can coaches do? I, I think it's more than ever like it's imperative that high school coaches get together and and be a part of community that that so that we can talk about the things that are issues for us, so that you know that they recognize that they're not going through these issues on their own. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and that what is it that you know what is it that if you if you join with a group of coaches that you know that you're vulnerable enough to share about what your, what your hardest, you know, struggles are as a coach and then seeing what kind of solution that can come out of that group think. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, talk about, we, we, we talked a little bit about building relationships and kind of the importance of that transferring to the court. Um, talk about what you've learned about seeding control, you know, of making play calls or doing a certain type of offense or defense when it comes to leaders on your team or scores, kind of what you learned about when you need to be like, no, we never, we need to run this offense versus letting them kind of freestyle. Cause a lot of coaches, a lot of players, they talk about, you know, coach lets me play my game, but kind of more, what does <laughs> that look like? And, and, and yeah. how does a player earn that level of trust when it comes to a coach? Yeah. I, I mean, you're talking to a coach who last year, you know, we've, we've, we've gone through this ascent of, you know, winning our league, you know, titles and such. And, you know, we went through a really challenging, you know, year last year, you know, where our record was nine and 15, you know, and, and a lot of what, 
you know, I, I think my philosophy continued to go on this path of letting the players make that decision, you know, more on the floor. But, you know, I think our struggle last year was indicative of how we hadn't done the work together as a unit in the off season, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that, that's not to make an excuse, but I think it's, that's, that's where, you know, I think the challenge of a high school coach today is where, so many kids are being pulled and this is again like i think you see this coaches dealing doing a better job of dealing with this in the east coast because it happens a lot more where you know the high level players are doing different showcases one weekend they're at usa basketball another weekend so they're the the chance to build that off-court chemistry in the offseason is you know definitely challenging in those you know hotbed of basketball you know whether that's in the dmv chicago new york and, and such um the opportunity in a small, smaller state like Oregon is that, you know, we don't have that many, you know, things going on. Right. So the off season is critical. I mean, it was one of the, the biggest um, driving factors for us separating from the pack when we we're winning is that a, our guys did a lot of work in the off season on their own, you know, so that's small sided games, two on two, three on three, four on four max, and really limiting that five on five play so that they're getting as much of the chemistry building as possible, you know, so that when it is a late clock situation, when it's end of quarter situation that they, you know, and I can call out a set, but there's already a counter that, that I can't make that decision for them on the floor. It's really up to the player to make that. So um, I think that's also been driven home to me a lot, you know, as I reflect on the past year or in past year's struggle is one chapter, but also as a whole, when I look back on some of the best teams that I had, it's it's really the off-season work that that translated into that level of trust, and you know, during the season. Mm. Okay, and then the last kind of uh, question with with Lo, and then we'll move on to uh, some quick hitters, and then we'll, we'll get you out of here. Um, See it, say it was was a quote that I heard a couple times in your interview with Slapping Glass. You know, how have you evolved as a coach in mm-hmm. finding the balance between stopping practice too often? and kind of disrupting the flow of things, Mm -hmm. especially with this ADD generation of athlete um, versus, you know, correcting a habit quickly in the moment, um, you know, to to ensure that you're getting your point across and that, that the message is sent to the whole team and not just that player. Yeah. Uh, You know, see it, say it, I'm I'm sure like, you know, if you, you probably heard it from some coach before, or, you know, my first time hearing it was from a legendary coach here. I had, chance to have coffee with and brad smith who uh, was a longtime girls coach head coach here in our state at oregon city um you, you think about just some random suburb in oregon they were you know this girls program was ranked number one nationally for stretches you know in the 80s and early 90s so you know i i, I had a chance to you know have coffee with this coach coach smith and he said it in and what, what he meant at the time is, you know, it was more in reference to the players. So, you know, getting your players to talk. And so oftentimes players don't know what to say. So he he said it like, if you see a back screen, say it, screen. If you see a shot going up, say shot, right? So it's more that that phrase was more born out of like getting the players to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you, you flip it as a coach, I think, say it you really got to pick your spot and when you say it i think it's got to be as we've heard in many coaching clinics um you got to speak in sound bites so it's very different than again this podcast where i'm rambling but (laughs) you see you see a player you know let's say a teaching point is they're doing a dho dribble handoff and they're not really attacking the the defender of the person you're handing off to Mm -hmm. you see it now what is your teaching point at that point to deliver is it to you saw you saw a play where a player wasn't taking full advantage of that opportunity to create an advantage for the rest of the guys on the floor? Do you do you go into that lecture mode and say, hey, like if you do that, then you don't you just wasted, you know, three seconds off the shot clock mm-hmm. and we haven't created an advantage, right? I think those deeper conversations, they need to come in the film session. Mm-hmm. But you need to as a as a coach develop a way of delivering that point, right? Um you could say, hey, inside the three-point line, right? So that it really shows that you're not just, you know, just dribbling around in in false motion on outside of the three-point line, right? Is it a keyword like attack, like be assertive, right? So that if you're inside the three-point line, you can actually keep it. Or it might be in a form of a question like that. You know, you might stop and, and say, hey, how you played that, can you keep it and take it for yourself? 
right? So I think it's just, and again, that variety of response that, and, and the split second decision the coach has to make at that moment, I think it comes down to understanding what player, what kind of constructive criticism that player can take. And how many times have you had to stress that teaching point? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, we're all human. You know, if you if you have to stress that teaching point for an eighth or ninth time, that's on the player. Yeah. You know, and maybe it's not even see it, say it. It's like sit him. Yeah. Have him watch. Yeah. You know, um, and so there's there's that level of accountability and balance that you gotta you gotta, you know, approach it with. You gotta have enough of a relationship, you know, built in with the players so that if they're having to sit out for a second and they're upset with you that you know you're able to bring him back into the fold and, and that next you know next time he steps on the floor now there's a little bit of sense of urgency like well yeah coach let me show you and i think some of that like competitive conflict is okay i think i think in in light of how much we've talking about the mental health of the players like you don't need to make it personal but look how how can i to you aaron like tap into your competitive juices mm-hmm. you know if if you haven't kept up your part and you're making the same mistake six, seven, eight times, like what's it going to take at that point? Is it one more soundbite or is it something more, you know, something more? So I think it's all of that is that's where the magic of coaching is. And, you know, that's why we're all trying to get better at it and figure it out as we go. Got you. Uh, last question, then we'll get to some quick hitters here. Um, what, okay. sets the, what sets the DMV apart from, you know, the different kind of hotbeds, you know, across the country? Yeah, I mean, that, I don't know if I'm the person to answer that because you, you'd have to understand that I only have a three-year window of it, right? And a particular time. Um, I, You know, when I, whenever I get a question like that, I also point back to, you know, when people, I, I, I don't want to fall into the trap of just having what I experienced from my lens in a particular window of time, right? So people ask me, hey, what's Africa like? I mean, what? I can't answer that for you. Like, I, I, I can tell you what Mozambique in 2006 to 2009 was like. Yeah. I haven't been back since 2009. I can't answer that for you. Mm-hmm. I can't answer what's a DMV. Like, I I have a certain window of the Damatha Catholic experience, which is 09 to, let's see, 09 to 12, right? And, you know, my first two years, we won the WCAC championship. My third year... James Robinson, this is a shot against PBI, you know, where we had a chance to be a four peak. So, you know, I've, I've been spoiled in that sense, even from my time at the math. So I can, I can't tell you like, you know, after I left the next year, you know, they, we, we didn't get that far. And it was a very challenging year for coach Jones and the staff. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the little bit that I, I do remember is just how much, competition there was you know from that window of time and and you know you're talking about players you know this is chris jenkins and nate Britt at gonzaga you know this is holloway just kind of starting to get his you know footing with pbi you know coach Torello had just taken over his first year i think what i believe was 09 was my first year at, at staff so they pbi hadn't really gotten going yet you know mm-hmm. and so it, what I remember the most is, you know, even as a varsity assistant coach going to eighth grade games, just the, the level of competition and, and how people are, you know, seeking out the best fit for themselves. I think I would imagine it's still the same, you know, with an addition, additional equation of these prep schools popping up and, and players going to overtime elite and other other places for elite players. But mm-hmm. really, that window of time, it wasn't that much. So you really, every program was so competitive. Um, and so again, what's the separator? So things that we talked about with Victor and Jerry and everybody else, right? It's the chip on your shoulder. It's the belief and it's the work ethic that matches all that. Hundred mm. percent. All right. So for these quick hitters, um, just just the first thing that kind of comes to mind. So what's a game show yeah. that you think you could win? Oof. Um. None. I, I, I'm not a game show person. Uh, yeah. Uh, like you could, I don't know if I have enough random trivia like Jeopardy or if I have, you know, the spelling acumen of a wheel of fortune. Um, I don't pay attention to prices of the, you know, the grocery store for prices, right? You know, I, if there's just a basketball centric 
TV show, then I'd be all right. Uh, but that's one of my faults. I don't watch other sports. I don't do fantasy football. I don't golf. I, I'm learning now, but I don't do it on a regular basis. It's really hoops or nothing. So if there's a hoop-centric TV show, let me know. Otherwise, I'll be pretty useless. Uh, invite three basketball minds to a dinner to chop it up with. They could be be dead or alive. John Wooden, um, Eric Spolstra, who I've gotten to know recently. He's a Portland grad at Jesuit High School, local, you know, local uh, coach. He and I actually got to connect a little bit, you know, since I did the slapping glass interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third would be, I mean, Morgan Wooten. You know, I, I got to see Coach Wooten you know, walk around the tracks a little bit and, and, you know, I'd see him, you know, from time to time. But by the time I got there, really, he, you know, he wasn't around as much. So mm-hmm. um, I would love to love to have sat down on an old Morgan Wooden, uh, John Wooden conversation with a current coaching hero of mine who's Eric Spolstra. That would okay. be a fun, fun evening. Um, What coach have you stolen the most from? Um... I mean, it's Coach Jones. Honestly, you know, he's he's one of my he's my north star in terms of a standard. Um, coach Showalter, um, the junior national team coach, he was so gracious with me during my early years as support staff, um, giving me a chance to get on the court and help, which just doesn't happen today. Um, those two guys have probably had the biggest impact on my coaching career. And then if I'm stealing. Um, Honestly, I, I steal a lot from my assistant coaches. Like I, I have Jason Luno, who is a current video coordinator. He was a, he was my assistant coach for a long time. Uh, Rob Smaller, who's my player development guy and you know associate head coach the last few years. Um, I think that that's you know I have I'm fortunate to have access to some of the best coaches through our junior national team pool or you know coaches overseas. But, you know, something that I, I really take pride in and I'm grateful for is that I have assistant coaches who are lifelong learners and they're more hip to it. You know, if I'm talking about stealing, it could be something as easy as, you know, uh, rolling your white socks over your sweatpants. Look, I'm 47. I'm not I'm not trying to be like fake it, you know, but like I, I you know, I did that for a stretch and practice just to, you know not mock them, but, you know, have a little friendly banter going like, am I hip like you guys, you know, but <laughs> I think it's, it's something to be said as I, I was getting older, I went through, you know, being 39 years old when I took over the program to 47 and with each passing year, you know, I, I get, I'm getting older, yeah. you know, I'm picking up some gray hairs and, <laughs> and I'm not as cool as I used to be. So I think just having, you know, younger coaches who are more in tune with the players, like I've stolen a lot just to stay relative. MJ or LeBron? MJ. What uh what book is a must read for every basketball coach? Oof. That's a good one. Um and if I just have to pick it's hard to just pick one. Um Yeah, I'm going to it's almost like you're going to have to come back to me on that one, but um <laughs> Yeah, you stumped me just because if I'm just picking one, that's hard. But, mm-hmm. you know, the the book that I, you know, the the coaching book that Coach Wooden wrote, version two, where Coach Jones was, you know, had a big part of it. I remember when I first got to the staff, you know, <laughs> I read everything because I, I just, again, I didn't know. So I highlighted everything. And it turns out, you know, um, Coach Jones had done a good job of taking the old with the new, right? Um, and so... I think that book gave me kind of a foundation without having to be that annoying assistant coach who's always asking questions. You know, I had a little bit of base knowledge to go off of it. Um, and then, uh, you know, after that, I, I would say there's a lot of books that I read that's outside. So, for example, um, Range is a book that I've read recently that I, I refer back to, you know, a lot. Um, I think in this day and age where there's a lot of specialists, if, especially if you're trying to be a head coach, you mm-hmm. have to be a jack of all trades. And just like I touched in the beginning of the interview where I'm pretty confident in that I have a range to coach from kindergartners all the way to professional players. I think in today's world, you have to be your own, you know, social media promoter for your program, or you have to be, you know, somebody who's really good at fundraising. 
you know, are you good at operations? Are you good at booking your own travel for your team? Or do you know how to delegate? What do you know what good travel looks like? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think just given the nature of where the world is today um, and how challenging being a high school coach is, if you have that range, you're going to set yourself up to be more successful than your competition. Would you rather take a charge from Shaq or try to guard KD with the game on the line? Neither. That's that's crazy. Why would I do that? <laughs> I mean, gotta pick one. KD. Yeah, I'm five eight. Just for all the people out there, have that visual. You know, be like Muggsy Bogues trying to guard him. If I if I get to pick him up full court and harass him a little bit, I mean, so it all really depends on the situation, time, and score, right? Am I down? Am I up? Am I? Do I get to pick him up full court? Am I on an ISO? Am I coming off the help side? It you sounds know, like you're, you're I'll, considering I'll that one over the Shaq charge. Scope, I, yeah. Um, you know, I honestly, the charge part is also interesting. You don't, you know, if you if you're good at selling it, you don't have to take that direct hit, right? If he's barreling down on a fast break and he's catching an alley oop to dunk over you, or if he's like, you know, rim line just with the ball coming down at you and you're at the charge circle, yeah, no, I'm not doing that, but. On the split ice, you know, quick ISO where he dips his shoulder into you one time and you can, you know, fake the hit. Again, so my, I think hopefully for the listeners, it's more like depends. And then, you know, I'm going to answer it the way I want to answer it, right? I got you. What's the best dynasty you've seen in basketball? USA basketball, junior national team. Mm. They've yet to lose international competition been a hell of a run this shout out shout out to coach coach jones who took over for coach walter and shout out to the current head coach Sharman white yes, sir uh who's an underrated twitter follow that you kind of find a lot of valuable uh stuff from um underrated it's hard just because like there's so many but uh yeah that's a good question um I, I've really been leaning on slapping glass a lot these days. You know, they, I know you re refer to them. They don't have a big Twitter following. So I guess I'll shout them out. I think they have a lot of good content. And what I appreciate about those guys is they ask really good follow-up questions that mm -hmm. show that they've done their homework and, and preparation for mm -hmm. their subjects, no the, the, the coaches that they interview. It's a great podcast or YouTube series that, that you're into right now. Um, you know, now that I'm in this kind of transition and tr trying to be a business person, there's a great one called uh, How I Built This with Guy Raz. Uh, R-A-Z is the last name. Um, you know, just interviewing a bunch of, you know, guys, who, people who, men and women who started their own business. So mm -hmm. um, I probably have that on my rotation on, on a weekly basis. Okay. What coaches do you study the most? Oof. Um more recently, I've been I've been kind of on my international game fix. So, um, you know, I'm wearing my Hoop Summit hoodie right now. You know, one of the things I decided to do this past year was, um, you know, I had an opportunity to, you know, after having served with USA Basketball for 10 years, and maybe, you know, my days back with USAB will come again. But I received a call to join the world team coaching staff, mm -hmm. you know, for the Hoop Summit game. So I, I had a chance to as Roy Rana, who ran him for 10 years, moved on. Caleb Canales, you know, currently an associate head coach with the Texas Legends, longtime NBA assistant coach, um, got a chance to take over as a head coach, and I had a chance to be his assistant this past April. Mm -hmm. So uh, more so than coaches, I just find myself watching the international game a lot more and trying to see what it looks like, whether you're coaching 16, 17-year-olds or, even, you know, even – you know, for the FIBA game currently that's going on with the world championships, what does it look like to operate with a 24 second shot clock? Um, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about that a lot because I'll be you know, hopefully involved with the game again this coming April. What's the hardest shot in basketball to you? Like to me, it's when you're in transition and that point guard passes you the ball at the last second and you're like in like mm -hmm. the dunker spot, like just outside the paint and defender kind of has time to contest your shot and it's a weird angle. That's just mine, but what's the hardest shot in basketball to you? Um, let's see. That's, that's a good question. Can you hear me? Okay. By the way. Yep. On this. Yep. Yep. 
Okay, give me one second here. Not the technical difficulty part, but my uh, headphone was running out. Transitioning over to the. Oh, good. Can you hear me? So you were saying the hard, hardest, the shot, hardest in shot in basketball. Yep. Okay, and for you, it was. For me, it was when you're you're in transition and the point guard passes the ball at the last second, and you're in like the short corner, like outside the block area, and you have to get that shot off most of the time with the de- defender wow. rotating over, and it's kind of a bad angle. That's mine. Yeah, I mean any 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 shot that's late clock, right? Um, mm-hmm. With pressure on, um, the hardest shot for it again. This is the depends, right? What player is it, right? Um, yeah. is it a player that's you. never not never used to taking that game winning shot is it you know a player that um is being double teamed constantly so i think it's it's all if anything you know it's it's context you know so um hardest shot that i i've noticed at least for my players is um really just the mid range mm-hmm. in general i i feel like more and more with a lot of our players. I don't know if you see it on the East Coast, but of so many of them. What's amazing is the shot-making ability of these young players now in yeah. transition, mm-hmm. taking the difficult shots. And what I find is that I've really rarely had a player who has that great mid-range touch. Yep. And whether that's off of one bounce or two bounce, I just don't see players working on that enough to dominate that simple part of the game that we've seen Kobe or anybody else. Like players don't put enough time in the gym to get better at that versus, you know, there's only so much time in the day. And what I find players work on the most is the difficult shots, not the simple ones. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Two more questions and we'll get you out of here. Uh, Half court shot was with some money or uh, as like coach Jones likes to do with some nice shoes in the line. Uh, you or MJ? Like MJ, like Mike Jones. Uh, this will be uh, <laughs> man, episode ninety four. Uh, no, this this is constantly debated. We <laughs> have just enough data with our film to dispute who's won. Um, <laughs> but if you ask him, he he's gonna say he's won more, and if you ask me, I'm gonna say I won more. But um, the next time I see him, hopefully it's you know visiting the Terrapins. Um, I'll see the home court advantage, <laughs> and even the ball. You know, basketball will have to shoot with the Under Armour ball, not a Nike ball or a Wilson ball. But um, I like my chances as the underrated underdog on the road. Not gonna lie, my favorite video for me, the one of you on uh, social media with the half court shot was, I think it was like right after the pandemic, you were coming across the court in the ball cage at LO. Mm. <laughs> yes, I was, I was, I was top tier. All right. So the yeah. last question, you know, Coach Cho, you know, as you've had an opportunity to kind of reflect on your career, you know, that this this uh this season here off, um, what do you want your legacy to be? Yeah, you know, um I I you know, I think I shared with you before I got onto the interview, I had a chance to go watch Coach Jones um get his name dedicated onto the Morgan Wooden Court. And, you know, one of the things I it really dawned on me was what it looked like to be a part of something bigger than yourself. So I think we, that's a constant theme for me. I think that's why it, I was able to transition so easily as a non-Demathic grad into that coaching staff. And it's something that I try to do every day um, in my own program. You know, um, I think success doesn't happen in the vacuum. I think it's very easy for in this day and age to think that if you put in enough hard work on your own, that you're going to get to where you need to. And I just, there's been so many talented players that I've seen that was unable to do that, you know, through my 10 years um, being in this space like USA basketball. Um, and I, I recognize more than ever that um, if I can build something that allows people to have their part in contributing to its success and feeling like they did that, um, they're always going to want to come back because it, it gave them a sense of ownership and a sense of pride when they look back on it. So my biggest legacy, you know, wherever I'd been would be to, um, to build something where people were a part of it. 
that mm-hmm. this isn't all about me, but really I'm, and I'm willing to be front and center and even, you know, as a Korean American in the basketball space, that's not normally seen, you know, culturally, I'm not comfortable with it, but I've had to consistently come out of my comfort zone to do that. And that also means that I take the faults when things don't go well. And I'm willing to do that as well. If I can be a shield for the people that I'm working with and working on behalf of, but mm-hmm. out of that place of safety, the people that I'm in, I'm responsible for, I hope that more than anything that they've had a sense of ownership and, and what they've been able to contribute into something that we all built together. Last question. I'm sorry. Um, what, it, it just, it just popped into my head. So if you were to kind of tell you know, I think you said 31-year-old Marshall Cho at the beginning of this, you know, if you could give yourself kind of one piece of advice, um, what would that be? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, looking back now, 31, I, you know, those, I had just gotten married. I had a chance to work some basketball without borders camps. And it's, it's interesting. It's been two decades and I've ran my own race and I'm content at 47 years old where I've, you know, where I've gotten to. Um, and I don't ever want to get into the comparison game. You know, for example, Tiger Woods and I are the same age. Like, does that make sense for me to have any, you know, joy if I'm comparing myself to somebody, you know, like that, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, I, I look back and a lot of the guys that I started out on the journey with their NBA head coaches or NBA GMs, and they've gotten to a certain point, I think, uh, career-wise, where they're able to, you know, provide for their family and whatnot. I and I don't mean this in a way where I envy where they are and I'm putting down where I'm I am myself today, but I do recognize for myself um, that I didn't think I belonged in that space at 31 years old. And it's taken me two decades to realize that no, I put the work in, I do belong. Mm-hmm. And I think um that sense of not feeling like I belonged on that stage kept me from maximizing all the opportunities I had in front of me that I, if anything, I had a self-imposed cap on what I can become. And I think that it, at my age now, 20 years into it, I'm comfortable in my skin, comfortable in my journey, in my craft to say, you know, the next 20 years, I can do whatever I'd set my mind on. And I didn't think I had that mindset 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So awesome. I'm a slow learner, still getting there. But um, I think I only say that that I need to have that for myself because if I don't have it for myself as a coach and I'm, I think there's a natural cap that I'm going to put on my own players and I don't want to be that coach. I want, I want the players that I work for to, to dream big and, and go out, go after it, but also recognizing the incredible amount of work, you know, comes with the kind of chasing the dream. Yes, sir. Hundred percent. Well, I appreciate the time today, Coach, and uh, you know we'll keep in touch. Looking forward to to seeing uh, what 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 venture you end up doing next. Thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Yes, sir.